You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you're able, just remain standing. If you're able to, if you're not, that's fine. I want to read this text as we look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. I want to welcome those uh, who are guests today. We're glad that you're here. Uh, those that are watching online this morning, we're glad that you're here as well. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Revelation. We'll continue to for the next several weeks. I think we're going to make it up to about chapter 9. And uh, when we get into December, we'll take a little break leading into Christmas. And then maybe after the first year, we'll come back and finish it up. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful in the death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Father, once again, we just want to say thank you for your goodness and grace. And Father, as we sung that last song, I couldn't help but imagine in my mind's eye, Lord, a day that is soon coming when every tribe on earth, every king on earth, every powerful leader on earth will bow the knee before you. Father, we recognize that all over the world right now, the majority of people who call you by name, your sons and daughters, the majority of them right now cannot live out their faith in complete freedom. The gift that we've experienced here for so many years, Father, is a gift that most of the world does not know. And as they've gathered in a house, if they've, as they've gathered in a store, as they've gathered in places in secret all over the world, Lord, this, this particular letter to this particular church speaks loudly. And Father, I pray that we would hear its message. Father, thank you for our brothers and sisters all over the world who are standing firm, faithful, even unto death. May we learn from their example. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to ask you a question. Can a high school football coach at the end of a game, walk out onto the football field at high field, 50-yard line, and can that coach bow his knee and pray to the God that he worships and serves? Pretty easy question, isn't it? And for much of our history, it's been a very easy question. Matter of fact, a non-controversial question at all, certainly. Our Constitution Although it doesn't give us the right, remember the Constitution was written based on inalienable rights given to us by a creator. Uh, the Constitution just puts it in black and white print. Uh, but that one opportunity that we have to worship whatever we want to worship. You can worship a tree, you can worship a rock, you can worship whatever God you choose. So we understand that in our culture that certainly a, a football coach who is not making his players come out and join him. He's not saying to his players, if you don't come out and pray with me at midfield, 
then tomorrow during practice you're going to have to run laps. He's not saying that. He's not saying that if, if they don't join him on the field and pray to his God, who just happens to be Jesus Christ, that's whom his faith is in, he's not telling his players that they must believe in what he believes. As a matter of fact, he's not even inviting them to come. If they want to, they can, but they're not required to. Now, for many years of our culture, many years of our history, this is a non-controversial issue. A high school co coach who loves Jesus goes out to midfield after a game, whether they won or whether they lost, bows the knee and just gives thanks to God for a safe game, for keeping his players safe, for the opportunity to play. That's all he did. But for some in that community, this became a problem that had to be dealt with. This became, well, a proclamation of one religion over another, even though that's not at all what the coach was doing. So, as you can imagine, for Joseph Kennedy, a football coach in Bremerton School District in Washington State, this became a battle that, quite frankly, he didn't seek out because he wasn't doing anything other than what the Constitution says that he can do. And the fact that his convictions about his faith in Jesus is something that he believes that it should be lived out in public. So he simply takes an eve, high field, and prays. But the school district disagreed. The school district said that he was promoting a religion as a leader in the school that this is no longer about his freedom to express his faith in his God, it, it became about he is influencing a group of people, and as his capacity as coach in the high school, he has influence over students, and therefore he is pushing his religion on people who have not welcomed it. And therefore, he was fired. Now, he had a choice at this moment. He could have simply just moved off and maybe found another career, found another school. But he decided that that this needed to be pushed back upon because there would be other coaches and other teachers and other play people in places of influence who love Jesus and may want to express that faith openly in public. So it goes to court. The first court agreed with the school system and said, you can't do that. And in fact, and I've read a lot of the, the opinions on this, and, and, and what was interesting is not so much the case itself, but the dissenting view was what was really interesting to me. Here's what they told that coach. They told that coach that you can't express your Christian faith in public. You can do it in a building. As a matter of fact, at one point in the journey, he offers this coach, they offer this coach an option. The option is, is you can pray in your classroom, you can pray in your office, but you can only do it when no one else is around. You, you can't pray on the football field in front of other people. In other words, you must take your faith and you must hide it. Well, he declined. <laughs> he lost the first case. It goes to a higher court. Guess what? He loses that case as well. His lawyers say, wait a minute, they've got this wrong. We need to appeal to the Supreme Court. So, after spending lots of money after spending lots of time, after his family being ridiculed, after his family has been threatened with death threats. Now understand, what did the man do? The man simply prayed in public. That's it. And so for years of his life, not being able to find another job, because of course the word's out, you want to hire that guy, it comes before the Supreme Court. And six of the justices declared that this man's 
constitutional rights were completely undermined, that he in fact does have the freedom to pray on that football field. But there were three judges who said that he did not, and I read some of their dissent. And I want you to know, folks, when I read their dissent, it put cold chills down my spine. The reality is, is that here in America, the local church has experienced for much of our history influence in the local community. You, you take a building with a steeple on it in any community, and they're all across our country, especially in the Bible Belt. You don't have to look very far until you see a steeple somewhere. That church was the center focus of any community. As a matter of fact, politicians who were run for uh, positions of authority would not even think of running for a position unless they were connected to the local First Baptist or the local First Presbyterian or the local Methodist church. They wouldn't even try because they knew there's no way they would get voted on if they're not an active member of a local congregation. That local church had influence in the community. That local church was honored in the community. It would never cross anybody's mind to go spray graffiti on a, on a church building. It just didn't happen for much of our history. But what we see with the Joseph Kennedy case and many other cases is there is a major, major change that we are seeing unfold right in front of our eyes right now. Now, I am not, and hear me clearly this morning, I am not a conspiracy theorist. I am not one of those folks who are out there just surfing the internet, taking for truth whatever I see. What I am doing is I am looking at our current culture. I am looking at the trend of where our culture has been over the last 20 years, and I'm looking into the future going, it doesn't look very good <laughs> as far as the community honoring the faith that you hold dear. This church, Smyrna, is in a beautiful location. It's 30 miles northwest of Ephesus. Last week we looked at the church in that city of Ephesus and we saw that in that city of Ephesus there was rampant sexual immorality that was going on because of the temple of Diana that was there. And if you were to walk down the streets of Ephesus, you would blush. Well, 30 miles to the northwest is another pretty large, pretty significant city, a city that's much older than Ephesus. And a city that is kind of in competition with Ephesus as being the most prominent city in Asia Minor, and it happens to be Smyrna. Smyrna was on a hillside overlooking the Asian Sea, and it was a beautiful location. And even to this day, it's still a beautiful city. And in fact, this is the only city of the seven letters of the churches that we're looking at. This is the only city that exists today. It's in the same area, the same exact city where this church was located. It's now called Izmir in Turkey. And you can go online and you can pull up the Google Images and it is a beautiful city, gorgeous. And this city still exists and from what we can tell, there are still followers of Jesus in this city even though it is predominantly Islamic now. So Jesus is dictating a later letter to John and John is gonna send this letter to these churches in Asia Minor. First one, Ephesus and now Smyrna. This city was loyal to Rome, even maybe more so than Ephesus. And what's unique about this city is that this was the first city in Asia Minor to set up an altar to the emperor. Uh, several years before John wrote this letter, there was an opportunity to build a shrine 
in one of the major cities of Asia Minor. Smyrna steps forward and says, we want the shrine here. There was 11 other cities in Asia Minor that was trying to petition the Roman government to have the shrine put in their city. Smyrna wins out, and they build the first, the first altar shrine to the Roman emperor Tiberius. So as you walk through the city of Smyrna, you're going to see a large edifice to an earthly king, specifically Tiberius. Now, of course, we know that at the time of this writing, Domitian is the emperor, and he is a ruthless, ruthless leader. Another thing you need to know about this city is that this city was, had a large community of Jewish people. We don't know who planted this church. We can assume, and maybe even Consider that Paul might have. It's only 30 miles from Ephesus. We know that Paul spent a lot of time at Ephesus establishing that church. It's not crazy to think that Paul may have also established a church either directly or indirectly in Smyrna. Even though the church in America has been relatively free of direct persecution for most of its history, for most of our history, Believers in Christ have not been ostracized in the community. For most of our history, you could name the name of Jesus. People may disagree with you, but they certainly weren't going to act in violence towards you. They weren't, going to, they weren't going to prevent you from either getting a promotion. You, you weren't going to lose your job. But folks, I want to say very clearly that you very well may, in the years ahead, face a choice between your faith in Jesus, or your job. You may, you may very well face your convictions about what is true and sticking by those convictions versus a promotion. You might even one day find yourself in a courtroom having to defend your right to express your beliefs freely in this country. You very well may find it. Our church, this church, very well may find itself in a lawsuit someday in the future where we have to defend our right to live out our faith in public. So here's the question I've got for you. When that day comes, what are you going to do? I know for some of you who are teaching in the public school system, either here or in another county, you've already been faced. I've had conversations with you. You've already faced some things that goes against your convictions. Whether it has to do with sexuality, gender identity, and you're, you're quickly coming to a reality that there's going to be a day coming where you may have to choose between your profession and what you believe, and you never thought you'd have to face that. What are you going to do on that day? Let me tell you what the church at Smyrna does. Look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, these words, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Now we've noticed, and I think you're starting to see that with each of these seven letters, Jesus starts out with talking about some characteristic or attribute of himself that connects right back to the vision that John saw. Now remember, these letters are going to be carried by a courier to these churches, and these letters are going to be read out loud, but not in isolation to the rest of what we've already seen in Revelation. So for example, the church in Smyrna, when they receive the letter, they're going to not only hear this part, but they're going to hear about what John saw on the island of Patmos when he had that great vision of Jesus Christ the righteous, and we see all of those characteristics of what John describes and what he saw. Well, each of these letters 
has a beginning or a starting point that references us back to that moment when John saw Jesus with all of his power and authority. So notice what Jesus says here. The words of the first and the last. The protokos and the eschatos, Greek for the beginning and the end. Jesus is making a clear claim of deity here. And rightfully so, because that's who he is. So he says to this church of Smyrna, he says, first of all, I want you to know who's speaking to you. I want you to know that it's me, your Lord, your King, your Savior that's speaking to you. I am the first and I am the last. There's only one who can make that claim, the Godhead Trinity, right? Jesus says, I am the first, I am the last. God said in chapter one, remember what John wrote? He says, God is the Alpha and Omega. What Jesus is saying here is that all things start with me, all things were created by me, all things exist because of me, and I hold all things together, Colossians chapter one. Jesus is saying to the church, a church that is suffering, make sure you understand by whose authority you are living. It's by mine, and I have ultimate authority. I am greater than the Caesars. I am greater than the emperors. I am greater than the Jewish people in your city who are bringing pain into your life. I am the first, and I am the last. But then he says, I am also the one who died and came back to life. So on the one hand, Jesus says, I am deity. I am God. But at the same time, he says, I, take a, I have taken on a robe of flesh. I lived among you. I was placed on a cross. John was a witness to that. John was there when they took Jesus' lifeless body off that cross. John saw him placed in an empty tomb. And John was in the upper room when Jesus appeared in the resurrection. So Jesus makes a statement to this church that is meant to bring comfort. It is meant to embolden them. That it's meant for them to understand who it is they follow. He's not some dead king planted in the soil. He's not some great speaker who came along and taught some good things. He's just not a guy who loved well. He is Lord of all. And that's what he's saying to this church. So imagine for a moment that you're sitting in this house church, probably a house church. Let's imagine that you're sitting there when this letter makes it to this church. When you look around the room, the first thing you're going to notice in this room of people who are part of this fellowship, the first thing you're going to know is just how battered and broken the people are. You're going to look at one family and the dad, his face is all bruised and battered. His jaw is probably broken, his teeth are missing. You look at his wife and his kids and it's obvious that they hadn't had a meal in a long time. They're dirty but they're faithful. You look around and here's an elderly woman who's apparently been beaten and kicked. Her ribs are probably broken. She can't even stand upright. She's walking with a cane and can barely move. And every breath of air she takes, you hear the wheezing where probably she has a punctured lung. You look at kids who are there who are limping because they got beat up. Why? Why, why has this man got a bruised face? Why does this woman have broken ribs and a punctured lung? Why are these kids being ostracized? Not because they're bad people, not because they're breaking the law, but because they love Jesus and they're not afraid to name the name of Christ. Something else you might notice sitting in this church, there's a lot of empty seats. They used to be filled with people. It's not that they're laying out of church. It's that because they're probably in jail, or they've already been put to death. I know this sounds far and disconnected from where we are today. 
I know that what our brothers and sisters are experiencing in China, in Iraq, and Kuwait, and North Korea, I know that their plight seems very far from us. But folks, hear me clearly, and I am not a prophet, but I want you to understand that what they've been experiencing for all of their life in following Jesus is coming to your front door. And it's coming quicker than you know. And my question remains, what are you going to do on that day? The church at Smyrna, the name Smyrna interestingly comes or is made up of the name myrrh. You can see it right there in your English translation, myrrh. What do we know about myrrh? Well, that was a gift that was given to Jesus when he was born. But we also know that that is a herb that was used in the preparation of dead bodies for funerals. So, so the city ironically, is named for an herb that preserves a body at death. He says, verse 9, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. Remember that word tribulation in the way it's used here means pressure. Like a wine press or an olive press. This church is under tremendous pressure. What are they getting? What's the pressure about? Well, the community, the society, and especially the Jews, which we'll look at in just a minute, is wanting this church to give up on the carpenter from Nazareth. They're getting pressure to recant their faith. They are being pressured to, to worship the emperor. They are being pressured to accept a God who is no God at all and, and transplant Jesus, their king, with another king, an earthly king, a king who is no God at all. That's the pressure they're under. And not only that, they are not able to buy and sell in the marketplace. Once it gets out in Smyrna that you are a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, when you walk up to a vegetable stand to buy vegetables, they won't sell you any. Well, when you try to open a business, you can't open the business because you can't get a permit or you can't get a spot. So your children and your wife are suffering right in front of your eyes not because you've broken the law, but simply because you love Jesus. That's the pressure they're under. This particular letter is filled with contrast. Let me show you the first one. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, and I also know your poverty. They were poor. These people had very little money, and you know how it works. Look, folks, there's not a lot that's changed under the sun, right? Money brings with it power and influence. So with these people who are impoverished, who have very little, guess what else they have very little of? Power and influence. But notice what Jesus says. He says, I know your poverty. But in parentheses, he says this, but you are rich. See that contrast? And it comes down to this. When the world looks at this church, they see weakness. They see foolishness. They see ignorance. They see, they see a group of people who are stubborn. They see a group of people who are meaningless. They see a group of people who can be treated any way they want to be treated, that they can be cast aside, they can be kicked and maimed and hurt. And see from the world's standards, when they look at that church, they don't see anything important. But notice what Jesus sees when he looks at the church. He says, I see that you're rich. You see, what Jesus sees as wealth is completely opposite of what the world sees as wealth. Jesus sees a group of people who are faithful even in their pain. He sees a group of people who love him in spite of what they're going through. He sees a group of people who are faithfully standing upon the truth of the gospel even though there's pressure from all sides 
to quit. And when he sees that, he sees people who are wealthy. Wealthy beyond measure. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? These people sitting in that room listening to this letter being read, and they hear these words. And they realize that this is not John saying this. This is Jesus, that John saw Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. And that John writes what he saw. And that this Jesus, their King, their Savior, their resurrected Lord, is speaking directly to them. And he says to them, I know the pressure you're under. I know the pain you're going through. I know how poor you are. But let me tell you something. You are wealthy. Can you just imagine being in that room and hearing that? What that would do to your spirit? For the one who's about to give up? That Jesus knows what they're going through? He says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And I also know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now here comes the next contrast. It's pretty, man, it's pretty powerful. There was a group of Jewish people, a large contingency of Jewish families in Smyrna. Now these Jewish people obviously would go to a synagogue and they would go through the motions of worshiping God. But Jesus is going to say something incredibly powerful here. He's going to say that those Jewish people in that city who are bringing persecution upon the church are not his people. You see, they're only Jewish by heritage. They're Jewish by birth. They may be able to trace their heritage back to the 12 tribes and back to Abraham, but Jesus is very clear here. They do not belong to me. They are not worshiping me. They are not honoring me. And then he goes so far as to say, they're not a synagogue of Jehovah God. They are a synagogue of Satan. Now, Jesus said the same thing to the Pharisees and religious rulers all the way back in John chapter 8. When one of the most contentious moments in the Gospels, uh, Jesus and the Pharisees are having this kind of this back and forth, and it's getting heated quite a bit. I mean, Jesus is really saying some powerful, strong things to these religious rulers. The very ones that should have recognized Jesus as Messiah are the very ones who want to put him to death. They've been waiting hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years for Messiah. Messiah comes, he performs miracles, he can heal the blind, he can raise the lame, he can even raise dead people back to life, and these very people didn't even recognize him for who he is. So Jesus is having this, well, conversation. And here's what they say to him. They say this to Jesus in John chapter 8. They say, wait a minute, we know where you're from. Your, your, fa your father's not God. Your father is some illicit relationship that your mother Mary had. See, there was rumors that had been flying ever since Jesus' birth that Mary had had an affair with a Roman soldier. That, he, that Jesus is the result of adultery. And so in that moment, the Pharisees lobbed that accusation at Jesus. Said, we know who your father is. It's not God. It's somebody else. You know what Jesus does? Jesus says, wait a minute, I know who your father is. I know what you claim. You claim that you are the representation of God on earth, that you guys are the ones who tell the world about who God is. But let me tell you something, God is not your father. Satan is your father. You can imagine that that wasn't accepted very well in that moment. Jesus says exactly the same thing here. The Romans and the Jews 
had kind of an agreement. That agreement was the Romans told the Jews, look, you can continue to go through your rituals. You can continue to honor your God. We'll allow it with some restraints. But we're not going to tolerate any other sects or cults. And guess what the Jews were telling the Romans? The Romans were being told by the Jews that the Christians were nothing more than a cult and that they're going to stir up strife within the provinces and that they're going to cause an insurrection because, look, they will not bow the knee to the emperor. So we need to do something about it. And you know what needs to be done? We, we need to punish them and even, and even kill them. It's incredible to me in history. If you look at history, if you become a student of history, especially within the church, it's amazing and astonishing to me how many powerful leaders come to the conclusion that those who follow Jesus, that the only way to fix this is to kill them. It's astonishing. That is the solution that is coming forward in Smyrna. Notice what he says. He says, Jesus says, they're not Jews. They're part of a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, verse 10 is a hard verse. And let me tell you why it's a hard verse. Because on the one hand, at the first part of that verse, what does he say? Jesus says to the church, do not fear. Okay, great. And Lord, we're already finding boldness in the fact that you would write a letter specifically to us, right? But then he says that next part. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. It would have been great for Jesus to say in this moment, hey, don't be afraid. I'm going to come and I'm going to wipe these people out. Hey, church, I'm going I'm to work out some scenarios, some circumstances, and I'm going to wipe out all your enemies so that you guys can be comfortable and flourish and be okay and not have to worry about any kind of pressure or tribulation. So therefore, you don't have to be afraid because in the very near future, I'm going to wipe out all your enemies and you can live in comfort and peace and, and worship me and all that. That would have been a great thing for Jesus to say. But that's not what he says. He says, do not be afraid for the things you're about to suffer. In other words, their suffering is going to continue and Jesus knows that it is. He says, do not fear. Behold, the devil's about to throw you, some of you into prison. Wow, that's encouraging, isn't it? Wouldn't that, be a, wouldn't that be an encouraging message that if I could stand before you today and our culture moves in such a degree that we can't meet in this building anymore because it's too obvious, we'd have to meet in our homes, and maybe I'm in your home, and maybe you just got fired, and maybe you just went to the grocery store to buy some food and you couldn't because of your faith in Jesus, and I stand before you, and guess what? I heard from Jesus don't be afraid, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. You're going to be thrown into prison. And Jesus points out who the real culprit is here. Remember Paul over in Ephesians chapter 6, he, he gives us that great, great text on spiritual warfare. And he says there, we, don't, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Powers and principalities, rulers in high places. Jesus says right here, very clearly, very succinctly, the real enemy, the real enemy you have is Satan, and he, he's going to empower people to throw you in jail. You see, the Jews had power, they had money, they had influence, and anytime you have power and influence and you disagree with someone, guess what you run to to make a change? Well, your power and your influence. And then you have this church that is poor, 
Can't even buy food. Well, you know what the result's going to be. We're going to throw you in the prison that you may be tested. Now notice this. God on the one hand says that Satan is going to throw you into prison, but on the other hand, God says, I'm in control of all this. Jesus says, I'm in control. It's going to be a period of trial and testing. And he says for 10 days. Now when we see phrases like that, it's really easy to get caught. Oh, what does that mean? 10 days. What does, what does the 10 days mean? The most simple, obvious approach to what is being said in this text is that Jesus is saying it's going to be a short period of time. It's going to be a short period of time. You're going to go through a trial, but it's going to be short. But we have to ask the question, why is the trial going to be short? The Romans were not known for big prisons like we have today. So in other words, if you, if you broke the law, if you broke Roman law and you go to court and you're found guilty, they didn't put you in a prison somewhere to just waste away. Nine times out of ten, they take your life. Jesus says, you're getting ready to be thrown into prison. You're going to be in there for a few days because you know how the Romans are. The Romans don't mess around with this stuff. You're going to come out. You're going to stand before a, a tribunal, a court, and there's going to be people there who testify against you who say that, that you're a sect, that, you that you're trying to, to raise an insurrection against Rome. And, and those judges are probably going to agree with that, and their conclusion is going to be your head will be taken from your shoulders. Or they'll turn you back over to the Jews and you're going to be stoned to death. So when Jesus says their trial is going to be short, what he means is, is that the Romans are going to act swiftly and they're probably going to kill you. Again, encouraging words, right? So again, I ask you the question. What will you do when you're faced with a choice between your faith and prosperity. The Smyrnans, the church at Smyrna, they, they are going to choose. Look, they, he says here, be faithful unto death. I, I, I have to tell you that I, I don't know what that looks like. I've never been put in that situation. And I dare say that nobody in the room, and even on watching all maybe we, we have people watching from other countries. Maybe they do know what this is like. And, and that they could become an example to us. But the fact is, I've never had to face that kind of per persecution. Have I been made fun of? Yeah. Have I been called all kinds of names? Yeah. Even before I was a pastor. More so now. <laughs> been called everything out of the book. If I were to play some of the voicemails I have on my phone or show you some of the emails, well, I couldn't show it to you without blanking some of it out. It's horrendous. Yeah, my family's been threatened in email. Yeah, that's happened. But I've never been persecuted, nothing to like what this church was and what our brothers and sisters all over the world are. And what Jesus says to them is be faithful unto death. How are we going to be faithful unto death? I mean, that's a, that's a big order. How, how are we going to be faithful? If we're, ever, if we're ever confronted with that, I hope we never are. But if ever it may be that your kids may be, or even your grandkids may be, the trajectory that we're on, the, fast, the pace at which we're moving is an incredible fast pace. And it's not impossible for me to consider that somewhere in our near future, it may come to this prison, or recanting our faith. Jesus says to this church, be faithful unto death. I can honestly say I'm not sure what that's like. He says to this church, more pain is coming. More pain is coming. It's not over yet. You must be faithful unto death. Church, I need you to understand that there's more pain coming. 
we live in an age now that, um, quite frankly, is kind of hard to really understand and reconcile in our minds. See, the, the, the place we live now is that if we simply disagree with someone, disagree not angrily, not with hate, but hey, I, I, just, I, don't, I don't live that way. That's not my worldview, so I, I disagree with that. That is the same as causing harm to that person. You see, there's really only one great major evil in the world as far as how our world defines it. And in American culture, there's really only one evil, one thing that is a sin, they wouldn't call it that, but one thing that is absolutely the worst thing you can possibly do. You know what it is? Intolerance. And see, here's the problem, the big problem with that. The gospel is intolerant. Either you put your faith in Jesus, the only way of salvation, or you don't. John 14, 6 says, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And get this, boy, this is an intolerant statement I'm getting ready to say. Unless your faith is in Jesus, you will not see the Father. That's pretty narrow, isn't it? But to say that in public, to acknowledge that in public, is the same as harming someone. And in a lot of people's viewpoint, it's no different than walking up and punching somebody in the face. That intolerance is the only thing that will not be tolerated. You can have your Jesus. You, you can have your Bible as long as you do it in your house or in this building, but don't come out in the public square and tell me that there's only two genders. That's intolerant. Do not come and tell me that Jesus is the only way of salvation when I know that all faiths lead to God. You see, the greatest sin you can commit in culture right now is to be intolerant. To not accept. And with that, because intolerance is now equated with evil, and evil and harm is what you're causing in another person's life. Now again, hear me clearly. I am not saying you're the angry Christian. The Lord knows we got enough of those. I'm saying you're simply disagreeing. You're doing it in love. You know where you stand. I'm sorry, I don't share your, I don't share your worldview. We're not even saying you have to believe what we believe as far as that goes. You're free to believe that, but, but would you at least consider the fact that I have a different viewpoint and can we talk about it? What's interesting to me is intolerance is okay as long as it's lobbed at Christianity. Isn't that amazing? Intolerance is okay then because you're wrong and you're hateful and you're doing harm to people when you say that you follow Jesus. This coach... The reason he's on the middle field, the 50-yard line praying, is not because he's demanding people to come join him. It's because he loves Jesus, and he wants to give thanks, and he believes he can do that publicly. And the Constitution says that he can. But there's a whole group of people that says he can't, that that's doing harm to his football players. And he must be dealt with. How? He must be silenced. He must be drugged through court. He must, he must experience death threats. He must lose his job. He must not, he, he's not going to be able to get another job somewhere else if we can convince the world that he's in the wrong. It sounds a little bit like Smyrna. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life. All, all through the New Testament we see these crowns, crown of righteousness, crown of life. Here, I think what this is referring to, is it talking about a literal crown? Well, maybe. 
I don't, I don't think that's the important part. I think the important part is, and what was important to this church, is that, that crown of life represents something very, very important to that church, eternal life. You see, the crown of life to this church, to Samaritan, when they hear the crown of life, they're not, I don't think they're caught up in a moment, oh, I'm going to get a nice gold crown with some jewels in it. I don't, I don't think that's what they're thinking. I think what they're thinking is eternal life. That this emperor and these Jewish people who want me to die and who may very well put me to death, they don't have the final say. Just like they didn't have the final say when they took Jesus off a cross and put him in a tomb. They thought it was over. They did. They thought it was over. They thought it was done. Jesus comes back to life three days. He's speaking to this church and he's saying, don't worry. Don't be afraid what man can do to the body. Because for what does a man gain if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? If you gain all the wealth and all the power, if you recant your faith and, and you just go with the culture, you may have gained the world, but you've lost your soul. Which one's more important? Which one has eternity connected to it? The church of Smyrna was going to be faithful unto death. Here's what we can expect. And again, I'm not a prophet. I'm not making predictions. And I hope with everything in me that I'm wrong. But here's what you can expect. You can, you can expect legal battles. We can expect as a church to sometime be drug into court. You can expect at some point that if you live out your faith in public, somebody's going to have a problem with that. And somebody may sue you. Somebody may ask for your job. Somebody may ask you to, re, to, to resign. And in that moment when they're asking you to resign, they will say to you, if you'll just forget about Jesus, if you'll just quit praying, if you'll just quit opening your Bible in the lunchroom, if you'll just quit doing this, all this can go away. And folks, I ask you, I plead with you, what are you going to say in that moment? Because it's coming. We can expect government restrictions. Church, we can expect at some point that we will lose our nonprofit. So be it. I don't care. Here we stand upon God's word and we will not move. Nonprofit, profit, it doesn't matter to me. We can expect, we can expect possibly eventual violence. Because remember, to disagree is to inflict violence on another person. Even though, isn't it just like Satan to do this? I mean, it, this makes perfectly good sense. The church of Jesus Christ is to be known for what? Jesus said, you're to be known by this. Love. But the majority of the world, what they see when they see the church, when they listen to what's in the news and listen to what's in podcasts, here's what they believe about church. They believe we're people that just hate everybody. It's exactly the opposite. Where do you think that flows from? What's, what's the fountainhead of that lie? Well, of course, Satan, right? But boy, people are believing it. We can possibly expect prison, jail time, Seen it in Canada. Folks, listen, right across the border in Canada, we have pastors who've been thrown in jail because they simply wanted to gather and worship. Listen to what Jesus says to the church. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear. Every church has an ear. So this is meant for every church to hear. He says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers... Now again, you look at the church, you look at Smyrna, you look at the church in North Korea. Did you know there's an underground church in North Korea? One of the most dangerous places on earth, there is an underground church in North Korea. Now when you look at that church in North Korea or Smyrna, you're like, well, not very impressive. They don't have a building. They don't have a worship team. They don't have anything. They don't have a budget. They don't have anything. 
So for the world standards, they're poor, and they really don't mean a whole lot, but in Jesus' eyes, oh no, they're wealthy. Jesus says you're going to conquer. And for the one who does conquer, you will not be hurt by the second death. There's an old saying that says if you've been born once, physically born, but if you've never been reborn, John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, right? So the idea is if you've only been born once, but you've not been reborn, second birth, then you're going to die twice. Born once, die twice. You're going to die physically, and then one day you're going to die spiritually. The Bible tells us, we'll look at it eventually, the lake of fire. You will be separated from God for all eternity in torment. One birth, two deaths. But get this, if you've been born twice, physically born, spiritually reborn, you'll only die once. Physical death, and then after that, you'll be in the presence of God forevermore. Jesus even says that in that moment of death, he'll be with you. He'll walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Amen. I want to tell you about a pastor who took over this church in Smyrna 60 years after John wrote this letter to the church. So 60 years after the church receives the letter, there is a pastor that leads this church. And this church loved this pastor. As a matter of fact, this particular pastor was a disciple of John's. And this particular pastor was 86 years old. When finally, the city of Smyrna, its leaders, the Jewish leaders decided that this pastor, he must be dealt with. Now again, this is 60 years. Jesus says to the church, be faithful unto death. Well, we fast forward 60 years, and we have a guy by the name of Polycarp. And Polycarp was greatly loved by his church. The account of Polycarp's death is the oldest account of a follower of Jesus being martyred outside the New Testament. So this, this is a historical account outside the New Testament with a tremendous amount of detail about what happened. So the leaders of Smyrna go to Polycarp's house to arrest him. He doesn't fight. He doesn't run. He asks if he could pray for an hour before they take him, and they allowed it. So he prays. Eventually, he's taken and arrested. And, and what we find out is all the way from the place he's arrested all the way to the Colosseum where a crowd has gathered, because word has gotten out that the pastor of the church at Smyrna this great troubler of the city of Smyrna is now going to be brought to the Colosseum and dealt with. So a crowd has gathered. And they're, they're, they've got blood in their eyes. So all along the journey, every soldier, every leader that is in the presence of Polycarp are all saying the same thing. Just recant your faith. Look, all you have to do is just simply honor the emperor, honor him as God, worship him, and if you'll do that, all this can go away. You don't have to suffer. Look, you're 86 years old. Now, some of this I'm feeling in, but you're 86 years old. You're an old man. Isn't it time to give up on this whole idea of this carpenter from Nazareth? I would imagine that in those conversations and over and over again, Polycarp says, I will not recant. In one time he says this, he says, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, he says, in my 86 years of following Jesus, he has never done me any harm. Why would I deny him now? Sounds like a man who knows Jesus. 
They tell him, certainly they had to tell him, well, look, if, if your God's in control, if your Jesus is all that, then why is he allowing this to happen to you? Right? If, if he loves you and he's all powerful and, and he's more powerful than the emperor himself, then certainly if you just call out to him, he'll come and save you. But the fact that he's not saved you probably indicates that he's not real and therefore you just need to recant. Can you imagine the pressure? Can you imagine that? They get him to the Colosseum and the officials first threaten him with wild beasts. They're going to turn the lions loose on him. That was a pretty common practice in the Roman Empire. Polycarp is not phased at all by that. And so then they say, well, look, if, if you don't recant, uh, we're, we're going to burn you at the stake. See, there's the wood. We're going to burn you alive. Again, another common practice. Listen to what Polycarp says to that. Quote, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. After a little. For you do not know the fire of coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Do you, do you hear what I'm hearing there? On the one hand, he confronts him and says, look, there's an everlasting fire that's coming for the ungodly. By the way, that's you. And that fire is going to last for all eternity. The fire you're going to burn me with is going to last for a little while and it's over. But the fire you're going to face, that's eternal. But then he says this, hey, if you're going to burn me, let's quit talking about it. Let's get on with it. Now, you can either say that's insanity, or I think the better choice would be here's a man who's confident in his Christ, confident in his Lord, confident that this life is not all there is. He says, bring the wood, bring the fire. Let's quit talking about it. Let's get on with it. Man, faithful unto death. So they gather the wood. They put it around Polycarp's feet. They've got a post there, and it would be normal practice to nail him to that post. To either put his hands behind his back, drive a nail through his arms into that pole for the sole purpose of keeping him from running out of the fire. It makes sense, right? The flame starts. If he's not secure and held into that fire, he's going to run out. You know what Polycarp says? No need for nails. Nails aren't going to hold me here. I must stay here because of Jesus. They light the fire. The crowd has blood in their eyes. They're watching this man be consumed with flames. Now folks, if that's not any more satanic, I don't know what is. Here's a guy who simply tried to love his Lord and love his community, and they have such hatred in their eyes, they want to see him dead. Not only dead, they want to make a spectacle of it. They, they, want, to, they want to celebrate the burning alive of an individual who's done nothing wrong. If that's not satanic, I don't know what is. Polycarp was consumed by the flames in one eyewitness account who apparently had seen many people burned alive said this, when he watched Polycarp be consumed by the flames, something was different that day. It was not like what he had seen, a body being consumed with flames. The flame was so bright, it reminded this one eyewitness of what it looks like when gold is being refined in a fire. When gold is placed in a fire to be refined, to get the impurities that it burns with a bright white light. And this white witness says when they saw Polycarp burn, it wasn't as though a body was burning, it was though gold was being refined in a fire. I would have to imagine that Jesus was right there with him in that moment. 
And that's exactly what happened. His testing was over. His trials were done. And he went to be with the Protocos and Eschatos, the first and the last. He went to be and is to this very day in the presence of our King of Kings, of Lord of Lords. And there he will be for eternity. One day I'll get to have a conversation with Polycarp. How awesome is that? So I go back to my original question. What are you going to do when you're faced to choose? When you are when you are faced with the decision of your faith versus whatever. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, well, I still haven't become a Christ follower. I've not put my faith in him. Let me, let me pose a question for you just a moment. If you look at history, if you look at, if you look at the history, you will find, ever since the church began, you will find martyr after martyr after martyr. You'll find blood all through our history of followers of Jesus, just like Polycarp, who were beaten to death, beheaded, burned at the stake, and it goes on and on and on. The very disciples, the very disciples lost their life. Peter, crucified upside down. James, thrown off a high pinnacle. It didn't kill him. It broke his legs, broke him all to pieces, but he, he survived it, and then the crowd comes and then beats him to death in the street. John, an old man at the time he's running, is left on the Isle of Patmos to simply suffer and die, sleeping on the cold, hard stone with no clothes and no food. Lost person, let me ask you a question. How is it that all of these people all down through history refused to recant Jesus? Why is it that after force faced with maybe even their own family dying in front of their face, would not, would not give up on Jesus? And another question you must ask yourself is why is it that the whole world turned against them? Could it be, could it be that what they stood for is what is really true? Could it be that Christians all over the world who are being persecuted for their faith, that they really know what is true and what is real? And could it be that because they know what is true and what is real, that Satan hates them with an everlasting hate and wants them destroyed? Could it be that the fact that all these people are being persecuted legitimizes the reality of who Jesus is? Well, that's a hard question for you, is it not? Because you've bought into the idea that you can just be a good person and everything's going to be okay. But if Jesus is truly the only way of salvation and his people are suffering because of that message, you've got to think for just a moment that maybe, just maybe, it's true. And if it is, then what does that mean for your eternity? Lost person, I'm telling you, this is not something to be playing around with. If it's real, then you've got to choose. Choose something. Choose to deny it or choose to accept it, but simply make a choice. And just understand that the choice you make has eternal ramifications. Church, let me ask you a question. Maybe you're thinking in your mind, well, man, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that, if that comes. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm a little scared that, that maybe in that moment I'm, I may say the wrong thing. Listen, hear me clearly. He that lives in you is greater than he that lives in the world. At the moment you put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God himself comes to live inside of you. And here's what I have confidence in. I don't have confidence in myself, but I do have confidence in the Godhead Trinity it transformed my life. And when I come to that moment, I firmly believe that God's not only going to give me the words to say, he's going to give me the courage to stand. But I do think it is based on, are you standing today? You see, it's going to be really hard to be faithful unto death then, if that's what comes, or faithful to Christ in the possibility of losing a job, faithful to Christ losing your business 
I don't think you'll ever be able to find the place to be faithful there if you're not even faithful enough today to open God's Word. If the only time you crack the Bible is on Sunday, that's the very definition of unfaithfulness. How in the world, if that's too much of an inconvenience for you today, how in the world are you going to stand then? You won't. And that could be an indication of something that's wrong in your heart. Those who recanted, those who went with the culture, those who walked away, they didn't lose their salvation. You need to understand that. They never had it to start with. That's why they failed in that moment. So folks, this is a serious thing. And it comes down to the question of what are you going to do when that moment comes because it's coming. Maybe a year, maybe two years, maybe ten years, but it's coming. And you're going to be forced with taking a stand for Christ or you're going to acquiesce to the culture. What are you going to do? You need to wrestle with that right now. Father in heaven, the goodness and beauty of your word is such that not only does it challenge, but it encourages. The very nature of your word to us, just like it was to this church, is, is not to beat down and destroy, but to, to encourage, to prepare us, but also, Father, to bring about in our mind and in our heart where we really stand with you. Father, I, I would have to imagine that for those in this room and those online who are looking at the culture, they, we all have to admit that a lot has changed in a short period of time. And Father, it's not hard for us to imagine that real persecution like our brothers and sisters all over the world have been experiencing for a long time may be coming to the Bible Belt, may be already here. So Father, I, I ask that and for those in this room who name the name of Christ, who've already been changed, who've come out of darkness into light, that, that they would know and make a choice right now for, they, for them and their house, for their kids, for their wives and husbands, that they've already chosen who they're going to serve. And Father, that you would embolden them and encourage them. Because Father, we are to be faithful just as you've been faithful to us. The one, Father, that's far from you, for the one who has religion but no relationship, for the one who is relying on church membership, good works, and a whole host of other things. Father, when that moment comes, it'll be really, really easy for them to just simply walk away. Father, I pray that today they would choose who they're going to serve today, right now, by faith. Finally, once and for all, move beyond religion and be transformed. May it be so in this moment of worship. May it be so in this moment. May they call out to you Admit their brokenness and express faith and be changed. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.